This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. I was thinking on my way in this morning how y'all were missing out. Because Carrie Underwood and I were singing a Old Holy Night duet that would blow your mind. It was good, too. It's really good. You know Jason. <laughs> she was good, yeah. Oh, so there's... Good morning. There is a... Uh, there's a man in the New Testament who... He's overlooked oftentimes. He's one of the most uh, in, uh, transformative figures we find in the New Testament, yet, yet he's glossed over. He's, uh, there are other prominent figures, in other words, that take his place. Who in your mind might be this man? Hundred people were surveyed, and uh, top five answers. Inside joke, sorry. Had to, Derek. You're welcome. Hundred people surveyed. This man is John the Baptist, the pre-runner for Jesus Christ, the man who bridged four hundred years of information from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the man, the only single man who was selected to be the pre-runner to Jesus Christ himself. Yet Paul gets a lot of information about him because he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Peter was bold, uh, but John often gets overlooked. So I want to talk about John this morning. Who was John the Baptist? Or John the Baptizer, he was called. So we're going to dig into John. This morning's lesson is going to have a lot of information. We're going to have a lot of slides. We're going to move quickly. There's going to be not a ton of commentary on each slide, so it's up to you to keep up. And we're going to piece a lot of puzzle pieces together this morning. And the goal is to, once we, as Eden and many of the kids here like to do puzzles, at the end we have this very clear picture of of what we're trying to describe. That's my goal this morning. So keep up. We're going to move quickly. So Luke 1, 13 through 17. Again, we're trying to figure out who John the Baptist was. It says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will uh, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John had an amazing task, a huge task in front of him, uh, a lot of work. Luke one sixty six says, And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. So we see that John was called out for a very specific purpose. And if you recall, Mary visited Elizabeth, John's mother, while she was pregnant, and John leapt in the womb. So there was about six months, roughly, age difference between the two, John and Jesus. So, well, we'll get into that in a minute. A little bit more information about John. Now, in this testimony of John... When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So he was asked specifically, who are you? And John can speak for himself. He says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So John was not the Christ. 
Okay, we, we can find that out about him for sure. And they asked him, then, who? Or what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. He says to them, then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? Tell us who you are, John. What do you say about yourself? And he replied, he said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. And he said, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John three twenty-five through 30 says, Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered and said, I, or he said, a man can receive nothing unless it be given first from the Father. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been, uh, have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. And he's, he's describing himself here. He says, I'm not the, I'm not the bridegroom. He said, I'm the I'm the best man. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm his pal. I'm his buddy. I'm the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him. And he says, Rejoice greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Then he says, I must, he must increase, therefore I must decrease. It's amazing that John's joy was fulfilled, not that, in, that he was something or that he had some special task, but his joy was filled knowing what he was proclaiming and what was to come. And with, with great joy and gladness, he could easily decrease and allow Jesus to therefore increase. It had to happen. Matthew 11, 11 says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one Greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. So the child grew and he became strong in the spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Now, we don't know a ton about John. I mean, we, we can read what we just read. We read that from his birth, even in the womb, he was called to serve God in, in a spectacular way. He was called to go before Jesus to make straight the people's paths and to call their hearts to believe on him. This, this phrase here at the end in verse 80, so the child grew and became strong in the spirit and was in the deserts, Often it's thought of John as if he was, he was a wild man that lived out in the sticks. And, of course, we know that I think he ate locusts and honey. And, you know, he wasn't your average guy. He, he, wasn't, he was set apart, and he lived a different life than most people. This, best I can tell in verse 80 here, says, Till the days of his manifestation of Israel, his, his father, Zacharias, was a priest and the custom was that at the age of 30, they would become eligible to begin starting their priestly duties. So it's in all likelihood, John was around 30 when he began to go out and proclaim this message. Interesting. Who does that remind you of? And if, if John and Jesus are only about six months apart, roughly, again, I, I, I wouldn't. You know, try to take that to the bank, but 
best guesstimation is six months uh, apart in age. Then their ministry, given the fact that we know Jesus' ministry also started at the age of 30, their ministry had only six, roughly six months to a year apart. That's not very far. And all that's important later on as we start putting these puzzle pieces together. He grew and he became strong in the spirit, was a wild man that lived off of honey and locusts. That's what we know about John. He lived a pretty obscure life as far as we can tell biblically up until the point that we're fixing to get to. It's, it's really neat though that 30 years of his life had passed before God says, okay, it's time. How much, you, know, you wonder how much could John have done in preparation for Jesus at the age of 20? You know, if you give him 10 more years, how much could he have done? But God knew, he knew and he knows exactly the time that's needed. He knows exactly how things ought to go. Whether it's six months or 20 years, he knows what he's doing. And I find that beautiful. So, we learned a little bit about who John is. Now what we want to understand is what did John teach? He had a very important message for us. So what was that message? We're going to dig into that a little bit here. And we'll start moving. For this is he of whom is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. So... Behold, I send my messenger before your face who is to prepare your way before you. So he was preparing the way for Jesus. It says in Matthew 3, 1 through 6, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who, has spoke, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So we've looked at, who, in studying who John was, we learned about some of his message. And in those two verses, we find out what what he was there proclaiming also. So we're going to list those. The first thing was to prepare the way of the Lord. That's what he taught. He taught people to be prepared for the coming Messiah. Number two, he gave knowledge of salvation. He was trying to under, help people understand that what salvation was going to look like under the authority of Jesus Christ. They didn't have that information. They needed it, and he was preparing them for it. His job was to preach repentance, as we saw in Matthew 3 and 2. His job was to baptize in water, specifically. It refers to that in Matthew 3.11 and other places in Matthew. He was teaching the confession of sins, which was a vital part in turning people's hearts to God. Teaching confession of sins. And he was also there to make ready a people for the Lord. He had an amazing task, an amazing responsibility. And that's why I say, who is somebody in the, in the New Testament that is often overlooked and we kind of brush over? Imagine if you were given that task. That would be huge. The single person selected for that. So what we want to understand and dig into is John's baptism. Okay, he had... This limited window of time to do all these things, to prepare people's hearts to receive Jesus, to prepare the way for Jesus to come in and become Lord. He had this limited small window to do that. And his baptism was an integral part of this process. And it has huge implications then and on us today and the future of the church until Jesus comes back. So what was John's baptism? What was its significance? What exactly did it look like? So we want to understand John's baptism. Matthew 21, 23 through 27. This is important to understand the overall picture. 
And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you will tell me, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. And he goes in to talk about John the Baptist. The baptism of John, whence was it? Is, he asks, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned with themselves. Imagine they're like, I don't know. You know, what should we say here, guys? They reasoned within themselves. And they said, if we shall say that it was from heaven, he will say unto us, then why didn't you believe? But if we say that it's not from heaven, then we're going to stir a mob. That, that's why they were reasoning or trying to figure out the political answer <laughs> instead of what they actually truly believed. So they responded and answered Jesus, we cannot tell, which is probably better that they just said that. We cannot tell. We don't know. And he said to them, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do my job. This is significant because it tells us that John's baptism was under the authority and authorized by God. It got its power not because John was excellent or because John deserved it or because he was better than anybody. It was because God ordained it and authorized it for the use of the kingdom work. That's important to understand, that it was authorized by God. We're going to flip through a few verses here pretty quick in understanding John's baptism and what it was to accomplish. Then said Paul, John, then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Jesus Christ. We see that John's baptism was to provoke people to believe on Jesus Christ. Matthew 3, 5 through 6 says, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And what were they doing? They were confessing their sins. So his job was, his, his baptism was to convince people to believe in Jesus Christ. And it was to help convince, convict of sin. Third thing, it says in Luke 3, 2-3, While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So we see that John's baptism was one of repentance. It required somebody to recognize their sins in order to repent and confess your sins, you must understand that you have sins and that there's a problem with that. And that's what John was doing, convincing people that they needed remission of forgiveness of sins. Fourth thing, John 1, 33, I did, not, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see in the Spirit descending, and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John 1.33 says he was sent to baptize with water. So we can see clearly that John's baptism was very authoritative and it came from God. Secondly, John's baptism required or was the, to teach people to believe in Jesus Christ. Third, John's baptism required confession of sin. John's baptism required repentance. And last, John's baptism required water. Does this sound somewhat familiar to us at all? It should. So let's look at this verse in Matthew 3.11 and try to understand it. Matthew 3.11 says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. That was one of the things that John did. He says, But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to even carry. He 
will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, Dane, that verse tells me right there that there was a transition. John baptized with water, but Jesus will come and he will do away with that and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I've heard that and maybe some of you have too. How do we, what's the answer for that? What does that verse mean when we look at it? How do we understand it biblically? Well, that's why I say puzzle pieces, because we have to piece the Word of God together and really look at it as a whole to understand it accurately. So if you looked at that verse and read that alone, you might say, well, yeah, John baptized with water, Jesus came, he did away with that, now he baptizes with the Spirit and with fire. All right, well, let's look at it. Let's deal with it honestly. So this but, but, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but what next? Let's look at fire, okay? Let's look at what baptism with fire or by fire means scripturally. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This sounds familiar. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as the father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is going to be cut down and cast into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, verse 12 says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Does that sound like a baptism that you want? Do you want to be baptized by fire? Let's look at Luke's account. And he said, therefore, the same thing, basically. It's, it's a very similar account. Therefore, said to the crowds that came out to be baptized, and, he, and he's, John is, he's knowing that these, these Pharisees, no matter how hard John tried, that they would not listen. You brood of vipers, you hard of hearts, what is wrong with you? And so he's trying to get their attention because he knows that they will not confess their sins. They will not give up the fact that they are unrighteous and unholy in the sight of God. So he calls them out. And he gives a stern warning. The same thing is mentioned here. We have Abraham as our father. Well, God is able to raise up children from, from Abraham from these stones. But he says, bear good fruit in keeping with righteousness. Bear good fruit. But he says, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is going to be cut down and what? Thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he answers them and says, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all their questioning, uh, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. So he's gathering quite a following so that some were even asking if he was or considering that he may be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he was mightier. I'm not able to even put his sandals on. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Just like we read before in Matthew Luke says his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff will be burned with an unquenchable fire. 
This is being baptized by fire. This is when the Bible talks about being baptized by fire. This is in Matthew and Luke. Of the four gospel accounts, Matthew and Luke are the only two in this scenario that mention both being baptized with the Holy Spirit and being baptized with fire. And in both cases, that baptism by fire is described as this unquenchable fire that is a punishment for that chaff that will not be gathered by Jesus. Mark and John, however, when they talk about this scenario, they say that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't, they don't mention fire. And subsequently, there is no discussion at that time of this dividing between the, the wheat and the chaff and, and no stern warning about being tossed into a fire if you're considered chaff. Does that make sense? You don't want to be baptized by fire. In the world, we use the term baptism by fire. That's not good. <laughs> that means you're, you're tossed into a situation and you figure it out by, by failure sometimes. Baptism by fire is not what Christians want and is not what Christians experience. Okay? Baptism by fire is a judgment that Jesus Christ himself will pass on those who have been disobedient to him. Okay, we don't want to be baptized by fire. Jesus, though, is the only one that can do that, is what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say. So, let's look at Matthew 3.11, and where he says, but, he says, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the Holy Spirit. And let me just say as a disclaimer that I, I don't have the time to spend on every single one of these topics to, to be able to do each one of them justice, and you can go away saying, man, I firmly understand that. You may go away saying, I didn't understand anything he said. I'm sorry if that's the case, but I definitely don't have time to dive into each and every one of these and spend all the time that they deserve. Hopefully we can gather a big enough picture, and you can study these things out and, and verify for yourself. John baptized with water, but... Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? So the Holy Spirit baptism. We have some instances in the New Testament. Let's look at them. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying that, I need to baptize you. Uh, why, why do you come to me? Jesus answered and said, Permit it to be so. Uh, for it is, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. That's another whole lesson. So John said, okay, I'll allow it. You know, I guess I'll, guess I'll do it, Jesus, after all. When he had baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we see here the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus, which we see as a dove. Okay, that's one example of where we see the Holy Spirit descending and falling upon somebody. Let's look at another example. Acts 1, <clears throat> 4 through 8 and verse 12. He says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You remember this is when the, the apostles, Jesus had just ascended, Acts chapter 1. There's the, uh, the apostles are gathered together in this place. That's what they're talking about right here. He says, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or season which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall witness to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and the Samaria and to the end of the earth. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Ol uh, called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. So we see that fulfillment in Acts 2 at the beginning of the chapter, in the first five verses. Remember, he said, it's important that he said that they 
remain in Jerusalem, that you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem. And so here we find them now in Acts chapter 2, where? In Jerusalem, where they were exactly where they were supposed to be. And this is what happened. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord in one place, and suddenly there came upon them like a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and, uh, and one sat upon each other, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, and the Spirit had, as the Spirit gave them utterance, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem with devout men from every nation. Now, there is a ton in Acts chapter 2. This is one of the most miraculous events that occur in the New Testament. And this is when the Holy Spirit descends as a miraculous thing on this group of apostles that were gathered in Jerusalem, specifically told to be in Jerusalem and to be prepared for this. Acts chapter 2, it happens. The Holy Spirit descends on them, and what happens when they receive it? What happens? They begin to speak in tongues. What happens after they begin to speak in tongues? Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the, the mo one of the most prominent sermons in the New Testament and that has ever been preached, and the church starts. So we see the Holy Spirit descend as a dove on Jesus. We see the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way descend on the, these apostles that were gathered here in Jerusalem. And third with Cornelius. Acts 10, 1 through 4, and then we'll skip down 44 through 48. You can read the whole chapter. It's about Cornelius and his household. It's about the interaction that happened with Cornelius and Peter. It's really important to, to read, so I would suggest reading the whole thing, but for time's sake, we're going to look at these. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. I want to call your attention to the type of man Cornelius was. A centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. He was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming to him, saying, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. That's a miraculous event that we should take note of. God speaks to Cornelius. What happens between here and there? Peter subsequently has a dream, a vision. And his vision is a, a sheet filled with unclean animals. And God, in this dream, tells him to eat of these animals. And he says, I, I, I won't. I haven't ever eaten these animals because I'm a Jew. And these are unclean. And God tells Peter, he says, what I call clean, let no man call unclean. What is going on here? <laughs> Cornelius has, is told by God that something would happen. Peter has these visions of, of these animals and is told that, there's, that what he thought was unclean, God says isn't clean anymore. What is going on? We pick up in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking the word, so Peter was sent and he meets up with Cornelius and his household. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those that heard the word. Those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anybody forbid them water? That these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Just as we have, Peter says. On the day of Pentecost, in a miraculous way, the Holy Spirit comes down on Peter and those who are gathered, and the exact same thing happens in Cornelius' house. And, and they say, well, what, why, how should we forbid them water? Because the same exact thing happened to them as it did us. Can anyone forbid them water? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay a few more days. So we see with Jesus a miraculous event. The, the, the Holy Spirit comes down as a dove to proclaim that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. And we see in Acts chapter 2, the miraculous event, event comes down in cloven tongues as it were fire on the apostles that were gathered together in an effort to begin the work of the church. 
And we see in another, the third miraculous way, the Holy Spirit comes down and covers Cornelius in his home. And Cornelius doesn't do anything to deserve this. He didn't go out and do anything at this point. The Holy Spirit came on Cornelius and his household. Why? Why is important? It was to proclaim, not just to them, but to the entire world, including us, that what? The Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. This was, new, this was a revelation. This was a huge event in time for the church because the Jews were the only ones that were considered clean, and that's what the vision that Peter had was all about, was about the Jews and the Gentiles. See, God woke Peter up and said, listen, it's not just salvation through Christ is not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles also. And he had to see that through this sheet filled with unclean animals. Miraculous event number three. Changed the course of history. So the Holy Spirit baptized, in a way, these people, and Jesus Christ was the author of that. But notice with each of these baptisms, it was the Holy Spirit descending upon people. And in two of the cases, the last two that we looked at, what happened as an outpouring of this Holy Spirit? They spoke in tongues. That was one of the manifestations of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So, as we read in Matthew 3.11, that Jesus, yes, that John baptized with water unto, to teach repentance, and Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We looked at fire. We don't want to be baptized by fire, that Jesus will execute judgment and punishment someday, and that will be his judgment. And then, two, we looked at the Holy Spirit and the baptism that is spoken of. Now, we, we see other people speak in tongues. We see other events where men and women are given this ability to speak in tongues. It's at, but it's at the laying on of hands of the apostles as we look throughout Scripture. So this Holy Spirit baptism happened in three miraculous events, and those three are the ones we just looked at. So, okay, what do we do now? Let's look at Ephesians 4 and verse 6. It says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But how is there only one baptism if we just looked at three? Good question. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We want to make sure that we understand the correct baptism and that we apply the correct baptism. Because we're called to do that. It's vitally important to the church. What baptism should we understand? Well, in Matthew 16, the end of the book, uh, end of the chapter, the Great Commission was given to the disciples. And Jesus told them to go out into all the world and to baptize. He says, with all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that the baptism that we want to go forth with also? The baptism that Jesus himself said that I come with authority and I place it in your hands to go out and to baptize people. That's the baptism that I want to make sure I understand. Is that John's baptism? Is that... Uh, baptism by fire is that baptism of the Holy Ghost. Let's look at, we're not, we're not going to go through each of these. This is a whole multiple sermons. But here are the examples of the con uh, conversions in the New Testament. Okay, this is a breakdown of conversions. And I'll just draw your attention to a few of them. But if you look at that, basically, because we see segments of this happening in history and this story and this story, not every story is exactly the same, so we look at them cumulatively and we try to understand what's consistent, which makes sense. So as we look at the conversions in the New Testament, we see multiple. We see that there was belief. We see that there was a repentance, and that repentance would lead to confession in most cases, and then all of them, it says, were baptized. Now, you might say, Dane, well, how do you know that was baptized by water? How do you, you know? Well, specifically in uh, Acts chapter 9, I believe, it's with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch 
the Ethiopian looks at him and says, well, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? So beyond a shadow of a doubt, we see that water baptism was a part of the conversion throughout the New Testament. If you recall Paul's example that he himself describes, he says, someone said to him, and why do you tarry? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. So as we look through every example of conversion in the New Testament, we find water baptism. So if John's baptism came to accomplish something and we looked at what it taught and what it was about, what did it lack? It sounded a whole lot like the baptism that we, we preach and that we teach. What did it lack? John came uh, for a small segment, a small window in time before Jesus, and what was it to accomplish, and what did it lack? John 7, 37 through 39, or, yeah. In the last days, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scriptures have said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So we see here that Jesus was saying that I am the living water. And if you drink of me... Out of you shall flow waters, rivers of living water. But this spirit that he spoke of, which shall come on all believers, had not yet happened yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified. What does it mean that Jesus hadn't been glorified? What do you think it might have meant that Jesus wasn't glorified? Jesus had not died, been buried, and resurrected. The spirit had not come yet because Jesus had not been murdered, buried, and resurrected yet. He had not been glorified. That had to happen before the Spirit came. So Jesus, that hadn't happened yet. It lacked Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, as we find in Romans chapter 6. And a certain Jew, in, in Acts 18, 24 through 26, and a certain Jew named Apollos, born out of, at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogues, of whom... When Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them. You remember Jordan spoke a couple weeks ago, and he actually referenced this when talking about the work that Aquila and Priscilla did as husband and wife. They brought them to them, likely being hospitable as they were, likely brought them into their home, uh, likely brought Apollos into their home lovingly, and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Now, just picture this for a second. You've got Apollos here, who evidently is, is somebody. It says an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. Could that be said of you? Mighty in the scriptures. If they were describing you, would they say, hey, he's an eloquent man, that Dalton? Mighty in the scriptures. Came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He spake and taught diligently. We would think that this man had it all figured out and was on the right course, but when Aquila and Priscilla heard him preaching, that there was something missing. There was something wrong about his message. And they expounded unto, the, unto him a more perfect way. Now, if you recall later on, Apollos does become a great worker in the church. Remember, there was, there was becoming sects and divisions among the church. And many were saying, well, I was baptized of Paul or I was of Apollos. That's this Apollos. That's how effective he was in kingdom work. People were beginning to follow him and say, well, I, I'm a follower of Apollos. That's this man. Let's look at another example in Acts 19, 1 through 6, it says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus 
And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Okay. And they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? We don't know anything about a Holy Spirit. Okay, so what needs to happen now? Right? This should be a, a, like a, a looking glass into the answer of how we should interpret this situation. Okay? What should happen now? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? We don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's get you noted up on the Holy Spirit. And so what do they do? And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. So John's baptism was lacking what? Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is Jesus Christ. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. We haven't received the Holy Spirit why not? Well, we were baptized under John's baptism. Let's get you baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. If you want the Holy Spirit, you've got to be baptized into Jesus Christ. In verse 6, Paul had to therefore at that point lay hands on them in order to give them the miraculous ability to speak in tongues and to further the work of the church. Okay? It did not come down at that point as cloven tongues of fire. It was not a miraculous event. God had given the ability to the apostles to pass that ability on to other people. And that's what we see take place here in verse 6. In Acts 8, 12 through 19, it says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. That's exactly what we were just talking about that was passed from Paul at that point. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. Okay, that's the, the miraculous Holy Spirit, the ability to speak in tongues. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, for they had not been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands... The Holy Spirit was given. He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also. And why did Simon want that? Simon wanted it for his own gain. He didn't want it to do the work of the kingdom. He wanted to take that ability to impress people. Remember Simon the sorcerer? He, he, he didn't leave his old ways completely behind, even though we see that he was baptized. So we see here, and then it's verse 12 that people came and were baptized, including Simon. But they did not receive the miraculous ability that some of the apostles possessed. So being baptized into Jesus Christ does not mean that we are baptized with this miraculous ability to lay hands on people or to speak in tongues. That's separate and aside. Clearly, we find that in this scripture and other places, that it is separate and aside from the baptism that you and I experience and the receiving of the Holy Spirit that the church experiences. Acts 2.38, Peter preaches again later on. This was right after uh, their the cloven tongues had fallen on them in a miraculous event. Peter preaches his sermon. Then he says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Being baptized in the name of John or Apollos or Paul was not the goal. It was being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, which is exactly why John ushered the way for Jesus Christ in. He was trying to transition into believing in Jesus Christ. And that was his whole goal. He says that being baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 5, 30 through 32 says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be prince and savior. 
for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to those who obey him. See, the Holy Spirit that we find throughout that, that believers receive, all believers who are baptized into Christ receive, is the same baptism that Jesus gave to the apostles to go out and transform the world. It was not the miraculous gifting of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And he says here that those who obey him receive the Holy Ghost, receive the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, uh, 1, 11 through 14 says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. See, when we're baptized into Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest, it says in verse 14, which is the earnest or down payment. If I give you earnest money, if I want to buy Dwayne's house in our transaction, he may say, well, before I'll sell it to you, I want some earnest money. I want you to put down some hard cheddar, some cash, some dineros, in proof that you're good for it, right? Jesus said, I'm going to give you the spirit, my spirit, as a guarantee of your hope in heaven, as a promise, as a seal, it's called, of your hope in heaven, which is the earnest of our inheritance. So we, we are promised to inherit the kingdom of God. Have we inherited it yet? No. But the Holy Spirit promises you and I and all those who are baptized into Christ, that they will receive it one day. It is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. We are the purchased possession. We are the purchased possession. Titus 3, 3-7 says, For we ourselves were also once foolish. And I, I want you to try to picture yourself as this group that he's talking about, because it is us. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which he had done, but according to his mercy he saved us. According to his mercy he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration, that's speaking of baptism, water baptism, and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So he ushered in water baptism into Christ, and upon that we received this Holy Spirit promise, this earnest, this down payment of heaven, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs. We should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now that does not sound like baptism by fire. Does it? No, that sounds like we have been given a promise of heaven. In 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22 says, For all the promises of God in him are yes. I love this verse. For all the promises of God in him are yes. And all in him, amen. To the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us in God. So you are established in Christ and anointed with God. Who has sealed us. Listen to that. Like a, like a letter that was sealed with a wax seal. Not to be opened. Who has sealed us and given us the spirit. As a guarantee. When we're baptized into Christ, we're given a stamp a guarantee of promise that someday we'll be with God in heaven. It hasn't happened yet, and we long for that day. But we have a guarantee that Jesus himself instituted and promised us that we would have. And John the Baptist 
he got to be a part of that. He got to go right before Jesus and usher in this new way that had never been seen before. So, Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit in miraculous ways, or him baptizing by fire to, to execute judgment, does not negate or change anything about what we find about water baptism in the New Testament. And as we look at the conversions, it only solidifies and proves the necessity of it. And these are just some of the verses that talk about this, uh, certainly not all of them. But as we began focusing this morning about John, I want to end focusing on John. Because his life, again, was lived, uh, I mean, in the wilderness as a wild man, which kind of is somewhat appealing to me. <laughs> Not that I don't love the, the, you know, beauty and the sweetness of the ladies that I live with, but uh, this obscure life of John just to, to be raised up for just a, a hair, just a split second of time to say, I think I'll decrease so that you can increase. A life lived to point the way to Jesus. Is that not how we want to live? But he, he lived his life for that. He was willing to be obscure. He was willing to be nothing so that Jesus could be everything. And I ask us this morning as individuals and as a congregation, are we living our lives in a way that we're okay with being obscure, that we're okay with being nothing, and that we just for a split second of time we can point people to Jesus, that we can make straight the paths that lead to him? And I hope so. John's life ended with his head on a platter. with his head on a platter. All because a little girl said it should be so. But he pointed the way to Jesus. His life was dedicated to the cause. So what can we learn from John? Hopefully a life dedicated to his service. I look at our lives and I look at what John was trying to do. He was trying to take people in a dark, locked up, dungy prison cell. And he was trying to show them that there's a light coming. That there is hope. That the chains that you bear will not be yours forever because of Christ. Zacharias, his father, uttered this prophecy about John, knowing that the gospel brings light, and it brings hope, it brings forgiveness. And it takes us out of that dark, dungy, shackled position that we find ourselves in, and that the world finds themselves in. When we look at it, we, we say, how terrible it is and how desperate and wicked these people are. Well, John came to deliver those people and we should go to deliver those people with a life dedicated to his service. And if our heads end up on a platter, so be it. So be it. To give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. I envy John that his life could amount to so much, even though it's just for a glimpse of time. And I hope our lives, uh, I'm older than John, I'm older than Jesus lived, I hope that it has, I can be used for his service as well. I won't close without saying that if you find yourself, or if you feel trapped in a dark, dungy prison, shackled, hopeless, helpless, Imagine you're in a, in a cell with no light whatsoever, pitch black. If you find yourself like that, there is a light, there is a hope, and there is a promise that no one can take away in Jesus Christ. And he gives us the Holy Spirit that seals it and guarantees it for us. If you find yourself in that dark, dungy prison, 
There is a way out. It's Jesus. Let's continue to preach that message with no fear and complete dedication. If you do find yourself in that position this morning, we have the front pews left open. If you desire to receive the Holy Spirit, that seal, then we will baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. There will be no more shackles, no more barriers to salvation, and you don't have to worry about fire baptism. Okay? Thank you for your attention. We have an invitation song. Let's stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.